Hi, I'm your host, Mo Litsky, and the CEO of Prime Quadrant. You're about to hear a conversation from our Lunches with Legends series, where we connect with some of the most illustrious business and investment leaders around the world. To learn more, check out our website, lunchswithlegends.com. Now, without any further ado, I'd like to introduce our very special guest today, the legendary Barry Sternlicht. Barry uh, is the chairman and CEO of Starwood Capital Group, a firm he formed in 1991 and is focused on global real estate, hotel management, oil and gas, and energy infrastructure. Barry also serves as the chairman of Starwood Property Trust, uh, a leading diversified finance company, as well as senior advisor of Invitation Home, which is the largest publicly traded investor, owner, and operator of single-family homes in the U.S. Starwood currently manages over $115 billion of assets on behalf of its partners. And, and among many other accolades, he has also been named the most important person in commercial real estate by Mortgage Observer, Investor of the Year by Commercial Property Executive, and America's Best Lodging CEO by Institutional Investor Magazine. Ladies and gentlemen, it gives me great pleasure to welcome uh, to Lunches with Legends, the one and only Mr. Barry Stern. Like, Barry, thank you so much for joining us. Pleasure, Mo. Good morning. Good afternoon, everyone. <laughs> that was quite a, that's quite an intro. I, I, I'm going to send the heading to my mom so she's somebody <laughs> thinks I'm a legend. <laughs> yeah, well, the, the intro is the easy part, <laughs> making it real, which uh, you've actually made happen. So let's actually go back to that. Let's go talk and speaking about your mom. Let's begin with your story. Where did you grow up? What were some of your more formative experiences? How did you get to be sitting uh, here at Lunches with Legends? Uh, okay. I mean, I grew up in Stanford, Connecticut. I went to public high school. My mom was a school teacher. My dad was an engineer. Uh, I probably part of my DNA is my father was a Holocaust survivor, but he never was in a camp. He, he actually fought with the partisans. And um, actually, I, when I was 38, I found out that he shot a few Germans. Um, so... Uh, and he, he kind of bifurcated his life. It was sort of the, the war and then his new life in the States. He loved his country and he really, um, you know, impressed in me. You can do whatever you want in this country. There's amazing opportunities. And also, I think, you know, he said, worry about the downside, let the upside take care of itself. Um, and as a young kid, I worked in a factory in Norwalk, Connecticut, where my job was to remove the bulb from defective flashlights. His company made flashlights, disposable flashlights. And um, so I learned the value of pennies, right? And my mom would give me a penny if I behaved for a bubblegum machine in the supermarket. Remember those days? Yeah. And, um, but I think, you know, I think my dad, um, his business went bankrupt. He, he became a big deal in Southern Connecticut and he went with the governor to China. And he wasn't really paying attention to the details. He was got all caught up in the hullabaloo of being a successful, was regarded as a successful small businessman. And he he'd bought a piece of real estate in South Norwalk, Connecticut. Uh, where his factory was and it turned out that the factory was worth the building was worth more than his company <laughs> so they got liquidated and I, I, I guess I, I remember when somebody called him and said that they were missing a ton of inventory and he blew his bank covenant lines because I guess people had walked home with some of his flashlights or something and so I guess my my career has been fashioned after you know that those kinds of thoughts like and I probably if I have many people would say good and bad things about me. One of the things I, I agree with is I don't celebrate our successes enough. You know, the world's always throwing curveballs at you and I always worry about what could go wrong. Having said that, you gotta, you gotta get in the game and play if you wanna win. So can't just say no all the time. That's not a skill set. So, um, you know, I think uh, I was a liberal arts major. I, like I said, I went to a public high school, 2000 kids, uh, went to Brown University because you didn't have to do anything. You can, it's a completely open curriculum. <laughs> I, 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 I can't say I love Brown. I probably was too immature to deal with, you know, that. I, all I want to do is play basketball and tennis. I played college tennis there just, just for a year. But, um, and I, I regret not having taken a language or taken a science course. But I did focus in a major called Law and Society, which I called Lost in Society. <laughs> and it was a little bit of everything. And that kind of character is, is kind of my, my career. It's a little bit of everything. You know, I, I jump from asset class to asset class in real estate or whether I'm doing privates in the corporate world or running start hotels, which you mentioned uh, merged with Marriott. So it doesn't exist anymore as a standalone, but, you know, and I, and the other thing I, I was an artist as a kid and my mom is an artist and I went to a, a, a silver mine guild for artists in, in Westport, Connecticut. I always wanted to be an artist. But my mom said I'd starve. So my career in real estate started out in what I'd call more real estate finance. Um, and uh, and then transitioned to 
sort of the art when I design hotels and create one hotels or W hotels, that was like, for me, that was like not work. Yeah. That was fun. But I, I uh, graduated Brown um, and went to work at a consulting firm, uh, Booz Allen in New York, which is the only thing you do when you don't know how to do anything. <laughs> I'm sorry for those of you who are consultants. Um, and I, then I became an arbitrage trader. And then my father said, do you want to look at a little green screen for the rest of your life? And I'm like, oh, dad. So I applied to a couple of business schools. Um, I was making a living. I was broke. So I, you know, I was probably making like, I, I, my first job was 24 grand, but I probably got paid all in like $75,000. And, you know, that was important to, have to take a girl's dinner and be able to pay for her dinner. <laughs> so uh, I went, I, I applied to HBS in Stanford. I got waitlisted at Stanford. And I got into HBS and I went and I, I was ready for business school because I went because I didn't have a business background. And I really, my mom wanted me to be a lawyer. I took the LSATs. I, um, I was going to, I, and I said, I don't want to be a lawyer. So I, I didn't go. I called her. I said, I'm going to Harvard. She cried. And she said, Oh, you're oh, it's terrible. Just because she had a, uh, my older brother's a doctor. So I was supposed yeah. to be a lawyer. Um, and, uh, and I went to HBS and HBS was kind of eye opening. I found out that you learn that what you're good at relative to other smart people and that everybody has something to add to the equation. Mm -hmm. And, um, I would say Brown taught me how to think critically. I, I consider our business or any investments to be like Sherlock Holmes. And like, what, what could go, what, ask all the questions. And I, I, one of the things I tell our, our, our guys is that their true learning is actually the questions you don't even know to ask. And I, I give an example of my first investment for Starwood, um, for JMB, my firm, I graduated, took a job with out of, out of Harvard. And I was, I was my first job. I was buying the Alcoa Towers in downtown San Francisco. And there was actually a residential building there. And I was like, I was going to impress them. I'm HBS. I'm like, you know, let's go. And I, I do everything. I probably counted every blade of grass. I talked to every tenant. I, I knew what the building was built out of. I was all ready for investment committee. And the head of the investment committee, like, you know, three quarters of the way into the discussion, stops the discussion and says, how far apart are the parking, stri the parking lot stripes? I'm like, excuse me? <laughs> how far apart are the stripes? I'm like, I have no idea. <laughs> and, I, and I'm like, and he said, why? I'm like, why does that matter? He says, well, because we can restripe the parking lot and get more spaces in there. And, you know, we can add a lot of money and then we multiply that by the, the yield on the property, the cap rate. And like, and it's worth $10 million. I'm like, oh my God. So I call those the knuck knucks, things you don't know, you don't know. Right. And one of the things, and that's true learning. Like I can ask a question and now often if I'm doing an investment or I'm asking or any company, regardless of real estate, you say like, what is the question I should ask you that I'm not asking, right? Like what, what are you hiding in your draw that I don't, I'm not even smart enough to ask you the question. And, and I think, um, you know, running six public companies at various times, chairman or CEO, you know, the analyst community, I was always waiting for people to ask me the questions that really mattered. And they often throw you these pandering questions. You're like, oh, well, you know, but the one that the big elephant in the room, they're not even asking about. So, wow. and I wasn't going to volunteer it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was, uh, but it is interesting because I think, you know, one of the things about success, which we've had considerable success over 30 years is uh, humility, intellectual humility, that people are successful, sometimes lose their, lose their humility. We bought probably now eight years ago, five and a half billion dollar portfolio from Sam Zell mm -hmm. of apartments. And uh, they were being sold by EQR, which is a company that actually helped start Equity Residential Properties Trust. It was the nation's largest apartment um, owner. And we bought Atlanta and Charlotte and uh, Raleigh and Florida and all these growth markets in the South, which we were paying, we were all in. We, we have, we're busy every day. We're buying stuff. We're, we're seeing the results. We're managing these assets. And he basically uh, concentrated the portfolio in New York and San Francisco and in the, in the cities that at the, up to that time were like, this is where you invested. You were a bi-coastal investor. You invested in the hard to reproduce cities of New York and San Francisco, maybe LA. And we bought the Sunbelt states, you know, and I was like, I knew with certainty that these, our markets would grow multiples faster than those blue state cities. And, you know, people said, oh, Sam's got, you know, the leg on Barry and Sam didn't have a leg on Barry. His, his, his earnings started to come under significant pressure and we were, we levered our portfolio and it's been an amazing investment for us. So, you know, it's like, sometimes if you're rich, you, you don't pay attention. And, and, you know, you, it's not bad, but you lose, you lose your focus in investing no matter what you're investing in, if you're in, be in, like, don't make it a, a hobby unless you 
just don't care. <laughs> right. But we're, right. we're we're fiduciaries, and like we have to we have to give you our best shot, or we should just go home. So, you know, I I I can tolerate, and I actually don't mind when the world throws you curveballs because that's part of the game, and you just adjust. I mind human error, pilot error, right. when we're not, right. when we don't need a lease or we miss something or like a code or, you know, buildings and code compliant. And I always tell our, our team, like due diligence isn't talking to the guy who owns the property. <laughs> due diligence is getting the guys who have no interest in what you right. pay for the property, giving you the facts about the neighborhood or what's happening. And, I, and it's interesting because a lot of people go to great business schools and HBS and I, you know, the, they think they're the smartest guy in the world. You know, they come out and they're like, and they, they, when you go see a property, you only see what's there today. Unless you really inquire, you don't know what was there 10 years ago. And you're going to guess at what the neighborhood's going to be like 10 years from now. Sure. And, and I'm, I'm doing this chat from Miami and a very, very successful guy from New York came down here and built a hotel. And um, if you just stopped in town, uh, you would think this is a good location. But if he'd stayed here on the weekend, he would have seen that that is not a good hood. <laughs> right, right. And, and he never visited at night or, or on weekends. And, mm -hmm. you know, they, they're struggling. And the hotel, you know, built 20 blocks up would be a raging success. <laughs> but, but he, you know, HBS grad, super smart, great reputation, didn't check with the locals. Yeah. And didn't ask. He could have called me. We're friends. And I would have said, oh, don't buy that. Like, <laughs> <laughs> so, so but I, well, you know, that's like if you have in your own neighborhoods, like there's a shopping center. I grew up in Stanford. There's a, you know, it was a strip center and the corner never leased. It never leased. Right. You 30 guys went in there and they all went bankrupt in six weeks. You know, right. and, and you know that because you're a local resident. If I'm coming into town and I'll just pro forma the leasing of that space and I'll think it'll be 95 percent occupied and we'll be happy. And it doesn't happen. So. You know, it's like we all know a, a, a location at a restaurant that's turned over and over and over and nobody's ever succeeded there. So smart guys sometimes in their in their intelligence lose their humility and don't yeah. do the work. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. We can't live life on the spreadsheet. That just doesn't work. And uh, I did just, uh, by the way, that for me, the punchline of everything and the bottom line of everything you said is your mom was right. Yeah, <laughs> she, she had a point. So, but other, maybe just before we get to Starwood, um, and the genesis of Starwood, could, could you maybe share, besides for your parents, who would you say would be your most important uh, role models, mentors along the way uh, to get you to this point? Uh, there was a partner at um, Booz Allen who uh, was very complimentary to me. He put, put me under his wing and um, he was supportive of me when I went to business school. And he gave me the confidence in myself at a young age that I was smart enough to like survive in the world. Yeah. And he, he gave me some interesting advice also about that people would come after me in my career. You know, like I, I, I would hear a lot of shit about me. The more successful you are, the more people pick at you. You know, like the Wall Street Journal thought I was amazing on the way up running Starwood Hotels and then they're quick to pounce on you. Um, you know, they, they, at one point I was, when I owned Caesars, they said, like, if he doesn't sell the Desert Inn, he has no credibility. I'm like, what are you talking about? <laughs> so I sold the Desert Inn to Steve Wynn, and today that's the win. And, you know, and nobody seemed to care, but they were willing to take me down. You know, I didn't, I didn't really like being a public company CEO because the, you know, the media can be exceedingly complimentary when they ought not be and exceedingly mean when they, you know, and they often, you know, sadly, they, they do get it wrong, including the Wall Street Journal telling me I had four children when I had three. That was the front page of the Wall Street Journal. I mean, you might be able to fact check that. <laughs> I, did, I did have to go home and check with my wife what happened. Did I, did I miss something? family. So, um, but I, I think so. So he was very, and then, you know, I, I think uh, that gave me some confidence, you know, and I think everybody needs confidence in their careers. And somebody to like, who tells them they're, they're good. And also, you know, be, be careful. And, um, and the next guy would be Neil Bloom, who I went to work for out of business school. And Neil was out in the Forbes 400. And he called me at school. He said, you're our number one recruit. And I was had no intention of leaving the East Coast and going to Chicago. But they had a lake, which looked like the Long Island Sound for me. So I like being near water. So, and I went and I, you know, it was interesting because I learned a lot about um, negotiation skills. I, I, I was his actually my chief of staff is sitting in front of me and I was, I was his chief of staff for a year. I traveled everywhere with him 
and uh, watched him. We were negotiating with Walt Disney to buy their business called Arvita, which is a, they built Broken Sound and he woke uh, um, Boca West and uh, where the TPG Sawgrass, TPG Sawgrass. And they were a great community developer, master plan community developer, very famous. And um, we're, we're, we're negotiating to buy the business. And um, he's like, you know, he's basically telling him that the sky is purple. And I'm like, I'm sitting there like, I don't think the sky's purple. <laughs> and, I, and he says, the sky's purple. I'm like, what am I? I'm like, Neil, it's not purple. And um, he takes me out of the room and um, he says, of course, I know the sky isn't purple. I'll give this up because I want this other point a lot. And he's like, and he, he was so ahead of me in, the, in his negotiating skill. And also, I think, you know, that you learn a little about things to do and not to do. You know, I think sometimes in our career, we've tried to put our LPs first all the time. And when our seventh fund in the great financial crisis got into trouble, I immediately shut down the management fees. You know, nobody called me, nobody asked me to do it. Wow. And uh, I just said, I can't, I, I don't want to get paid. I, I was in a position where we could do that. You know, we could keep the lights on. There wasn't happy times, but, um, and then our, we could look at our assets. There was no financing at all. The banks had gone home. Everyone, the world is exploding. This is 08. Mm -hmm. and, um, and I knew that we were, we still had equity in these assets and we had to save some of them because the banks were calling all the loans. So I, I needed to raise a preferred, um, which I said, okay, we'll put a preferred ULPs determine what the coupon is on the preferred. And I thought something like 12 was fair. They came up with 20. I was like, that's terrible. So the guys who couldn't, who wouldn't put in the preferred, but they all said to me, well, how do we know we're not throwing good money after bad? Every single GP we have is calling us and saying they need, they need a liquidity facility. Yeah. And I said, well, here's what we'll do. We'll put up 10% of the money junior to you. And, but we get the same coupon, but, but you, we'll, we'll lose the money first and then you lose money. And so we raised like a hundred million bucks and 70 or hundred million bucks. And uh, we put up 10 million and uh, we only drew 17 of the, of the hundred, but you know, who does that? I mean, who, who actually, I did that because my dad told me, you know, your, your reputation is built over a long career and coming out of that crisis, you know, our, our business kind of went vertical. That fund didn't do so great. You know, we had, we learned a lot from maybe a return 80 cents on the dollar, 90 cents. Um, and I was running Starwood Hotels. I wasn't at Starwood Capital at the time. And, and I, we made a lot of mistakes. So I think, you know, you learn, the other thing is don't, you, when you make a mistake, please God learn from it, study it, understand what your mistake was. And, yeah. and then that, that makes us good investors and, and don't make it again. And we, you know, we, we made a lot of changes to the firm after I saw some of the reasons were self-inflicted. You know, they right. weren't just the market. It was, we, we got sloppy on crossing deals and stuff with debt. And anyway. So I, I think I'll double click on some of those in a, in a few minutes. I want to take a step back and just, to, I'd love to hear the story behind the genesis of Starwood and also why you ultimately got into hotels and hospitality to begin with. Could you uh, share that with us? All right. So, um, I was at JMB for five or six years. I was a wunderkind. I was like one of the top 10 equity partners in four years or five years. I was really good personal friends with my boss, Neil Bloom, who still is on the Forbes 400, by the way. The difference is I am too, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but anyway, uh, the 1991 financial crisis hits, the savings and loan crisis, and uh, they need to cut overhead or think they do. So I get a chat that, uh, you know, my job is no longer available to me. <laughs> I, I saw the handwriting on the wall. I actually was preparing to leave JMB. I could see that they were going to get in trouble. I didn't understand why people would buy malls at six yields when the governments are at nine. And right. 10 years at nine, like, this doesn't make any sense. And Neil said, well, real estate's just different. I'm like, I don't really know why that would be. <laughs> so uh, I was looking for a job. I talked to Richard Rainwater. I got an offer from uh, Marvin Davis. And then they let me go. Um, so all of a sudden, I'm like, well, that wasn't really fun. <laughs> I had uh, a note for $600,000 and a couple hundred grand of cash in the bank. And uh, a friend that I'd met during a summer said he would back me in my own firm. And I'm like, okay, I don't want to get fired again. That was not a pleasant, my, my, my first kid was in my wife's belly. And I'm like, I, that wasn't, you know, she's like, she sent me to the unemployment line in Chicago. I got off a bus and I'm like, she wouldn't let me take a car that I, I took a car back. So, uh, and um, anyway, uh, um, he came in with 10 million. It was the Burden family. And then the Zip family, I met them and they mm -hmm. put up 10 million. And my old boss, Neil Bloom backed me too. Cause he, I, me, he didn't want me to leave. I, I wanted to leave. And his partner was trying to hold the whole thing together. 
you know, and not keep from going bankrupt. I mean, I watched Mel and Herb Simon cry in Neil Bloom's office, you know, Simon wow. Property Group, because wow. when if you if you think your properties are worth five and six percent yields and your debts at nine, if people always say your properties are worth at a nine yield, you're bankrupt. And they yeah. were technically bankrupt. And that was the birth of the REIT industry. The equity markets bailed out all these guys on recourse debt, Sam Zell's Equity Residential, Simon Property Group. It wasn't like some move to them. It was the only way to untangle the heap of debt they had on their companies. So um, anyway, I, uh, I, so I started the firm, you know, in Chicago. Uh, Ziffs own a home in a place in Aspen called Starwood, mm-hmm. which is right around the corner from Red Mountain. And we we're in the hot tub. And I, I was trying to think of a name for the company. And um, I was 31 years old. And uh, I didn't want something pretentious like Corinthian Capital or Palladium Capital or something like that. Because we, we were two guys, me and I recruited a friend of mine from business school and, and, and an analyst who'd worked for me at JMB. And um, we, uh, we was just three people and we sublet some space from the AMA in Chicago. And our biggest decision was a, a plain paper fax or a curly paper fax. <laughs> and I actually had people from the ad agency who we sublet come sit on our side of the of the floor because we only had three people when investors came in so we could look more substantial. <laughs> I said, don't say anything. <laughs> and, uh, so, um, and we bought, you know, we basically, I made my analysts spend like almost a, about two months reviewing all the apartment markets of the country. And uh, I never really bought apartments at JMB. I did a lot of corporate deals and, and malls and I did that Alcoa deal. Um, and uh, so I went out and, was, you know, with this guy, I, a local sharpshooter and using exactly what I told you, this sharpest guy I knew in Denver. And we're driving around and he says, like, that apartment's T111 siding. And I'm like, I don't know if that's good or bad. <laughs> so I'm like, is that good or bad? But he asked the questions. We bought 8,000 units in um in like less than a year and, and we flipped them to Zell at three times our, our basis. We made like 150 million on 50 in 18 months. And then my partner and I split. I took all but one of the employees. I went back east, started and you know, moved into Greenwich, Westport, then Greenwich, uh, then Greenwich, can I get? And, um, and I built the firm from there. And my partner went off to found a, another successful firm. So um, it's been a it's been a crazy ride. And, and when I had an opportunity to get into hotels, I always liked hotels because they're people and they're art. I was a fan of Ian Schrager's and I had met him and I, I liked what he was doing to the hotel industry. I liked his Royalton and the Paramount and the Mondrian. But he, I thought, made a mistake in that he didn't brand them the same name. He didn't create a boutique chain. In fact, most people thought you couldn't actually create a boutique chain. <laughs> in fact, uh, there was an analyst from Prudential that walked with me through the W New York on his first opening day. And he's like, what do you do when this doesn't work? And I'm like, it's going to work. <laughs> so uh, we made $32 million our first year on a cost basis of $167 million. So it was a 20 on leverage. And then we did the wow. W San Francisco it was 21 million on 87 million total cost. So I was, and I was quiet about it because, uh, you know, I had Sheridan, I had St. Regis, I had uh, Weston, which I also bought. And um, people thought I was diverting resources to my pet project, right? In, in fact, it was the highest returning re- ever returns we had in the whole firm. And um, I had to, eventually, I, I, I couldn't take the pressure. I mean, the street was like, what's he doing? And, and also people inside the company, like, why aren't you fixing Sheridan? I mean, Sheridan, we owned none of the fleet. And we had to convince every owner to make the changes. It was a monumental task and wow. no two wow. Sheridans look like each other. So, you know, I chose the easiest road out, which was bringing, creating a cool little baby that gave a halo effect to the company. And also was our innovation lab because there was nobody to offend. Right. And I came out with the, the, the uh, heavenly bed and the, and we'd already done it in, in W hotels and no, and at the time, like taking their more out of the room, the people said, well, you're going to lose your AAA status. And I'm like, I don't care. I don't want this giant armoire in the room <laughs> that takes up half a room and I can't get the doors to stay open and they come closed. And it's such an ugly piece of furniture and the TVs had gotten handsome. You didn't have to like hide them anymore. You just put them on the wall. So, you know, these were heretic, heretic moves. They had a mobile phone in the room, like a cordless phone. They're like, oh, you can't do that. Everyone's going to hear each other's conversations on a cordless phone. So I, I, so I had a lot of pet peeves that I wanted to correct and, and, and working with interior, I was, I'm one of two businessmen in the interior design hall of fame. And I, I, that's one of my greatest accomplishments. So I, 
when I left and I sold the company or left the company, I, I, uh, I wanted to start a new hotel brand, but I wanted to be meaningful and have a purpose. I'd met this guy, Blake Mikowski from Tom's Shoes, and he gives away a pair of shoes for every mm -hmm. pair he sells. So I said, well, my kids were really into the environment and I've been involved with the NRDC forever. So I said, we're going to do a, a green, a, a green brand from the ground up, but it'd be a luxury green brand. And uh, so we started one hotels. I think there are six or seven open now, but there's probably another 20 behind that in Paris, wow. London and Melbourne, Australia, Sanya, China. We just signed a deal in Tokyo. And that's right. actually just a hobby for me because I love that. And when right. we deploy capital behind these hotels, it's really, it's a competitive advantage, but the bulk of our assets are not hotels. I mean, we yes. Do. So let me dive into the bulk of the assets. Cause I, and I think, listen, you, you mentioned earlier that you've invested across all asset classes within real estate, just maybe, you know, when you think about real estate today, how are you thinking about, you know, the, the tailwinds of inflation, the headwinds of rising rates, how are you thinking about the macro picture, some, some of the trends, um, what, what are your thoughts on that? Well, you're, you have a tug of war right now, three forces that are colliding into each other that are, are new. Um, like rates will rise. They, well, like, please God, they rise. If they're not rising, it's because we went into a big recession, right? And they'll probably rise a little more slowly with the events in Europe than they were going to do prior to this. Because this will, I saw a report, it will take a point off world GDP and probably, you know, just people being poisoning what they're doing to see what the outcome will be will affect sure. world GDP. Then you have uh, rents, which are actually rising pretty handsomely, um, driven by the wealth that was given out to companies and the, the, the fact that people's balance sheets are the best they've ever been in history. There's this two and a half trillion dollars of excess liquidity and a, and a very strange situation, you know, that, that you're seeing such a price insensitive market, even before inflation sort of showed up in the government's numbers you know, hotels weren't doing deals to get people back in hotels. They were like, and they, they found they could charge whatever they wanted. And I'm looking at our one hotel in South Beach from my office and the Formula One weekend, the hotel is charging $3,600. You know, it's like, it, it's, it's cash flow is up 50% from what I thought was an incredible performance in 2019. So, yeah. I mean, the rates are embarrassing. I mean, it's, I'm embarrassed. Like I didn't build the hotel for $3,000 rates, but uh, consumers are wealthy and at least some slice of the economy is doing quite well and, and has found a way to pay for this stuff. So, so you have inflation, you have higher rates and you have rents rising. Those three things are, are working against each other and with each other. If we get wage inflation and inflation is driven by wages, which it is happening, that's good for real estate. That means they can pay more in their apartment rents. They can, they don't really care as much about the office rent. I mean, the shocking thing is in markets that are have massive direct and indirect vacancy like New York and San Francisco and San Francisco is a basket case. Rents haven't fallen as much as you would have expected. Hmm. And, and because tenants aren't really negotiating, they're just saying, okay, the rents are 50 bucks. They're not saying I'll take it to 30. They'll pay 48, you know, rents and headline rents, they say in New York are down 5%. That's a shocking stat. And, um, and look at the recovery of apartments. We're seeing double digit rent increases, not just in the, you know, the fast growing states like Austin or Texas and, and Florida, but in almost every market we're in, save one. I think wow. Indiana, Columbus, Ohio, and DC are like high single digit rent increases. Everything else is double digit. And it, you wonder how long, it can't go on forever, but um, industrial, same kind of thing. I mean, we own both of those in our non-traded REIT in enormous quantity, $23 billion portfolio, all high quality assets, all bought, for that environment, rising rents, which we could see because we have so many apartments, we know exactly what's happening and how to tweak our assumptions based on the reality of what's taking place in the marketplace, like turnover. You know, turnover is a really important stat in an apartment. How many times are people leaving? Do they leave or they, they leave every year or they leave, do they stay extra year? Turnover has been falling because people don't want to move. There's no better deal out there. Everyone's moving right. rents. Right. So right. that saves you, you know, $1,000 per unit per year. If the guy doesn't leave or the gal doesn't leave. So maybe it's $1,200 now. So, you know, that I think the markets rent rents are more important than interest rates. So if people feel that rents will move up 7%, you can absorb a one point increase in fed funds, hundred basis points, maybe a hundred and a quarter. If the short end were to go to 3% cap rates would probably back up and, you know, and, 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 um, but, you know, again, is it, are, are rents rising because 
for good reason, because wages are going up and company profits are solid, that will be, you will buy down the yield on a property if you can capture the growth of rents. And we've seen some crazy trades in the, in the real estate markets and particularly in multifamily because rents are up 20% in some cities. But I think you have to be careful now. I think, I think the economy should slow on uh, the back half of the year. I think you have pretty good sailing because a lot of our assets are catching up to current market. Like if a guy's in it yesterday's rents and rents are up 20% now, when it rolls, we'll, we'll either get a new tenant who's up 20 from the existing rent or we'll probably roll that low at, at least up 13%. So <laughs> you're just playing catch up, even if rents right. don't move from here. And then the industrial markets have been unbelievably strong. Um, and probably will continue to be strong around the world. And, you know, we try to find our spots. It's when we jump from asset class to asset class as we see risk and reward change. So we might do, um, we bought a, a shopping center up in Palm Beach because it's, you know, exploding, which we haven't bought a shopping center probably in four years. And, um, and the yields were pretty good given the quality of the tenant base. And then, you know, we still continue to buy apartments and affordable housing. And we, we, and we also changed geographies. Like we, we've been buying in, we're probably, I think we're the third largest owner of logistics in Italy. I <laughs> mean, go figure. Why? Because we could get six cap rates back, you know, 6% yields when everything else in Europe was three. And um, you could finance them with European interest rates. You were getting really nice cash yields, cash on cash yields. And those markets have tightened up. We, those sixes are now probably four and a half. Wow. So, you know, it's still a high yield. I mean, and, and there's also this big arbitrage, which you see all the time, which is not obvious to retail investors. You can buy an individual asset at a better yield than a giant pool because the institutions want to come in. Let's say I buy, I could buy, let's say I could buy apartments at a four and a half percent, four or four and a half percent yield individually, putting out $20 million equity checks at a time. If I can group them together in a multi-billion dollar portfolio, I could probably sell that portfolio at a three yield. And in multiples, because the institutions like a GIC, Government of Singapore, or Tomasic, which is a Singapore, or some of the Korean light, and, uh, they want to put out $500 million. They don't want to put out $20 million. Right. And, they have, and they're looking at this as an alternative to bonds and looking at inflation and saying, I have one of the best protections for inflation I could ever imagine. It's better than a tip. And they're right. I mean, this is, an, and we, we, some of these guys are now buying this stuff unlevered. They just want to ride the curve and, and, the, and increasing. And let me explain replacement costs to some of the people, why it's so relevant. So construction costs are probably up 20% year over year in the nation. And let's say I want to get a 5% yield on a building and it's costing me. And if I look at the pro forma with today's rents, I can only get a four, but I'm not going to build. Right? right. And rents have to rise in order to justify new construction. So if I own stuff today and it's maybe lower than the rents of the new stuff, they will go up too. And so you want to own assets today and supply is being ever hurt. There's a ton of permits pulled for new construction. I'll bet at the moment, half of it won't get built. More than half of it won't get built because it doesn't work on, the, on today's rents. Right. So rents have to rise to justify new construction. And that means your existing assets that you bought, you know, that you thought were 80% replacement costs are now 60% replacement costs. And you have a big cushion. We made a career in B apartments not A apartments. You, only, you can only build nice. Nobody builds B. <laughs> and so B, B's, B rents went up much faster than A rents. They're also more affordable. And the A renter, the guy who bought that really nice new project that Tremble Crow built or Lincoln Properties, he ran out and bought a home. Right? My guy doesn't have the money to buy a home. So, yeah. Yeah. You know, so we had, we had uh, you're competing with single family homes, not other, not, not, not also not just you know, so, other, other so, um, apartments. So given given these the, these trends and what you're seeing, how should uh, you know? Again, everyone on the call is private investors, family offices. Like, how should investors be thinking about it? Like, what should they be paying attention to? I mean, rising costs at the same time, rising rents, um, and there's I, I, at some point the the gravy train stops. Like, how how are you? Uh, how would you advise other family offices and other families to be uh, well, allocated out- to the space? Taking out personal assets like homes, I, you know, I, I would think people, although if we had just bought Miami Beach, we'd probably be the best performing real estate fund in the world. Um, we could have bought everything I saw when it was just my house when I moved down here. Uh, you know, I think you ought to have 10 to 20% of your assets and hard assets in the cycle. It's a different cycle. I think you're going to see inflation is going to be pretty stubborn. Um, and inflation is going to be driven by wages in part. You know, the commodity cycle is 
this boom in oil will, will pass, you know, it will, it will settle down. Um, and, uh, it's just a cycle, right? They'll, they'll open up new wells and they'll get production up and there'll be an oversupply of oil and they'll fall back to 35 bucks. Um, the, uh, but real estate, I think is in for a pretty good ride with inflation. And I think, um, you would like to have fixed debt so you can get the benefit of, and, and don't worry about the current yields right now. If rents go up, you will get a big, nice current yield coming out. Um, and you got to pick your markets. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm nervous, very nervous about the blue states where not only are they typically anti-business, but they assume anybody who owns any building is, is rich. And so taxing buildings is a lot better than taxing a house. And, and so they, they think they're taxing the rich, not the pensioners that are our clients, right? Right, right. <laughs> that own that building. Um, so I say buildings, you know, houses vote, buildings don't. And, right. and so real estate taxes were the surprise of the last 10 years, but it could get worse. And right. so we, we've kind of avoided the traditional um, coastal cities. And uh, we have nothing really, we know office or residential in New York. We have nothing in San Francisco. It's not an accident, you know, the... We, we avoided that stuff and we, and, and, you know, look, do your homework, um, pick markets where, where you, you, you understand there are barriers to ent- some barriers to entry. Um, some people say go to short dated real estate, which short lease real estate, which are apartments and hotels. The problem with hotels is, you know, we are on Omicron, which must be variant three. Mm-hmm. I'm hoping there's not four five, six and seven. The yeah. market is assuming that they're recovering like that. And I'm not sure this isn't a multi-hump camel. Uh-huh. So, you know, we're, we've picked our spots in, in the hotel market. And, and you know, I, the worst impacted assets are the big boxes in the big cities. But they could take a long time to recover. In the meantime, your expenses are going up, including labor costs. Right. Um, the unions are emboldened in the big blue cities, and, and they're killing you on, yeah. on work rules and wages. So and healthcare costs. So, you know, I, I, I think, but, but it is an amazing asset class. And the question is, where do you, how do you play it? Do you play it through the publics or through like a non-traded REIT that, that we, we sell through the wirehouses mostly. And um, which is the benefit of current income and a, and a monthly market and monthly liquidity without the volatility of the equity markets. It's a really nice product, which is why I think it's, it's taken off and been so successful for us and for our investor clients. And then, you know, and then you can go into a fund, which is higher vol and higher returns. But our, you know, our, our S3, our, non, our non-traded REIT returned 26% net last year. Yeah, and I'll no, tell no. you, we, we did not think that was going to happen. But, you know, we, you know, we, again, you can, you know, we know what's happening even this year. We're still catching up to these rent increases through our portfolio. Absolutely. And so, by the way, just coming back, I mean, you're talking ge- geographically, because uh, most of the, the, the folks on this call are from Canada. Um, any thoughts on Canada and, and how you've uh, looked at the market here historically? Yeah, I mean, we is very hard for us to invest in because of withholding. Um, U.S. investors have to do sh- unbelievable. It's easier for us to invest in Bolivia than it is in Canada. <laughs> um, so traditionally, it's been tricky for us. Um, and that's mostly even for tax exempts, you know, the, that are recognized as tax exempts in the U.S. are not recognized as tax exempts in Canada. Hmm. So at least the U.S. tax exempts. Right. So uh, in our non-traded REIT, that isn't really as big an issue because most individuals, they're almost all individuals. There are some, some um, pensions, smaller pensions. Mm-hmm. But um, the Canadian markets are, are pretty good. Some of them have some rent regulation, obviously, like in Montreal. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, Vancouver's been a city. We've owned hotels. We owned all the Westons in Canada. We, we made a lot of money. Uh, it was a mm-hmm. good trade. Um, and, but we haven't, you know, every, most of what you're seeing here, you're seeing replicated in Canada, industrial, and, and obviously Toronto's had a, quite a residential boom. Um, and because, but because of the tax situation, we haven't spent that much time right, 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 right. on Canadian real estate. And, and um, even though I, the markets are understandable and vibrant, Vancouver will have a nice little bounce here with oil at 150 bucks. <laughs> yeah. And then Vancouver and Calgary. Yeah. Those are, they're exciting places to be. I mean, Cal- um, I meant Calgary. Sorry. Calgary. Yeah. 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 It's, uh, but um, coming back, just, uh, yeah, I want to come back to something you said earlier. I mean, obviously, you've had just extraordinary successes over a long period of time. Uh, but you mentioned earlier, you know, the mistakes, the, the fact that you better learn from your mistakes. So when you think back to some of the mistakes that you've made, what were some of the most profound 
learning moments of or or the most instructive mistakes that stand out for you? Um, well, the best deal I did was the worst deal I did. Um, back in the 80s, the richest men in the world were the Reichman brothers, Olympia and York, and they had built downtown New York. And exactly what happened to them, they wound up as the richest people in the world because they owned all of downtown and New York rents went from $20 a foot to $70 a foot and they had fixed debt. So all of a sudden they, they were worth you know, $10 billion when that was a lot of money. Today you make that in two weeks in crypto. But um, <laughs> anyway, so Neil, my old boss, Neil Bloom, he would travel up to Toronto where the Reichmans were based and, and it was like going to see the Lord. And um, you know, they said rates were going up. He'd come down and fix all our debt. Rates were going down. He'd unlock all our debt and swap into, <laughs> into floating. It literally was like going to see Moses. And, um, and they had made this big bet in, in London, in, in Canary Wharf. And, um, and Neil said, we need to go to Europe. So, and their investors are ready to go. So we, we, we were called by Goldman Sachs to play White Knight for a company called Ransworth that was being acquired. It was a, it was a, it was a part of a hostile takeover. And we decided we'd play White Knight. And it was about a billion two deal. I'm 28 or nine years old and I'm leading this deal for the firm. And I'm doing all the research and everything. And, uh, and we think we're gonna finance this deal with like $400 million of equity and no, $800 million of equity and $400 million of debt because interest rates are like 13% of the time. And we completely misread our institutional client base. And uh, we can only raise like three or $400 million of equity. And we still close now with $800 million of debt at 14%. And that, in fact, Neil, we had financing ready to go and Neil tried to fix, improve it and, and rates moved a couple hundred basis points against us. Long story short, when, with that capital structure, given that rents are kind of fixed and upwards only rent reviews every five years and, and interest, we, I could look at the interest expense and look at the rents and I knew we were going to go bankrupt. And um, um, it was only a question of when, not if. We were definitely going bankrupt. We couldn't afford our debt service. And they said, we can't go back to the investors. I said, well, you go back now or go back later, you, you're going to have to go back or you're going to have to give up the company. And they said, we won't go. And of course, PS, fast forward, they had to go back and they again didn't raise enough money and they, went, they ultimately lost all their money. And um, I remember two things about that deal. I talked to every analyst in the property markets in London, like one out of 20 wasn't bullish on the, on the market. And, and I, what, I, what I would tell my team is don't dismiss the outlier. Like, actually, that's the one you want to focus on. <laughs> like, why? Because there's herd mentality around everything. You know, it's like Tesla's $1,200, the next target's $2,500 a share. I mean, there's a point where just because the stock went up, it could be fucking overvalued, people. <laughs> yeah. so, I mean, like I hear these, I talked to a 32-year-old wunderkind this morning. He's like, I'm going to buy this stock because it's down 80%. I said, have you looked at the stock here? He goes, no. I said, do you know how expensive it is here? He goes, no. I said, well, it's still 100 times revenue. He goes, Oh, but it's going to go back up. Like, it, it could go down still. Right. <laughs> so, right. you know, uh, so anyway, don't dismiss the outlier. That was that was really Ransworth, and um, and uh, and I think it taught me again. Like, Neil was on the Forbes 100. I'm 29 years old, and he's like, I want to do this, and I'm like, I'm not so sure. <laughs> and he, we we went and bought. We, we, that wasn't enough. Before it went bad, we were going to buy another company which was also the sister company to a company that the Reichmans had bought. They bought Stanhope. We were going to buy Rosehow. They were partners in all these projects in London. And, you know, on that deal, this was the firm's own money this time, not, not clients' money. And Neil was on vacation in Tucson. He sent over his chief counsel to close the deal with me. And I, I walked around London that night and I looked at all these buildings and I had kind of all these cranes in the sky. And you kind of lull yourself into a false sense of security um, because you say, oh, that building in London, it's not going to be the World Trade Center. It's not 2 million square feet. It's going to be like three stories, 50,000 places, like 200,000 feet, the entire building. But then I looked at the market again. I looked at the building cranes and I sort of counted some things. And I went back to my room and I looked at our investment pro forma for Rose Howe. And I saw that, you know, we, were, we, were, we, we needed rents to go up like eight or 9% a year. And I called Neil in Tucson and I said, you can't do this deal. And um, he walked from the table. He was all ready to close. It was like three or four hundred million dollars of his capital, and we walked. I packed up and went home, and that company did go bankrupt. So, wow. you know, I and they would probably would have gone under if they'd done that deal. So, 
<laughs> I, I think it's like, and I'm 29 years old. I'm telling you, one of the richest men in the, in the world that he's made a bad choice. <laughs> so, you know, and then, you know, I've made some mistakes here, but, you know, I, and one thing that somebody said to me, which I think is super interesting, and a very successful hedge fund manager, and I asked him, like, what were your worst trades? And, and he said, not letting my winners roll, run. You know, human instinct is you're up 35% sell it and you hope your losers come back to par or better and you just hold them. Right. And then you spend all your time on these losers and avoid like making money. So I, you know, there's a business we're going to sell in our ninth fund. It's called in-town suites and, and it's 25,000 keys, 200 hotels. None of the people on this phone have ever stayed in one of these hotels. Their average roommate is $300 a week. <laughs> wow. wow. They're extended stay hotels and it, it's 65% margins. The hotels gush cash and they were down two and a half percent in COVID because they're used as homes, primary residences, because they have little kitchenettes. And uh, I never want to sell this business. But I, so I told my partners, I'm not selling it because it's, you know, and, and I thought the market would appreciate. So we, we, we could have sold it for a billion five <laughs> and, and made uh, almost, we have no equity in the deal we financed out of it. So we'd make $500 million. We're going to sell it for probably over two to, to wow. something and Staggering. you know we'll make 700 million dollars more just by holding it right and i and i so i think as investors like you have some great stocks you might send metal stops but you should probably hold your winners to some extent i mean this market is different the last two years were the roaring 20s in the 2020s not the 1920s and all all conventional benchmarks on valuations were thrown out the window and justified Nobody even talks about multiples of cash flow. All they talk about is multiples of revenue. And it's like you, you, you're coming up with ways to validate insane prices. And that's why, you know, real estate is boring, but we compound capital tax-free for long periods of time and people can't sleep in their computer. Like, I don't have to worry about being obsolete. You know, I look at Salesforce. There was a company called Oracle and the one before PeopleSoft. It's not even around anymore. And these companies are valued at 100 times revenue. And there'll be another Solana, there'll be another, you know, Ether, there'll be another coin, and these coins will be irrelevant, just like AOL Time Warner, AOL was irrelevant. Goodbye. Right. It was right. the king of the heap, right? And gone. So, you know, I think, you know, the only, the only one benefit of getting old is experience. And, <laughs> and, and having made all those mistakes, I get to try to not make them again and keep my people from making them again. So... That's so now, how do you, so let's let's actually double click on that. Like you've had great instinct, and in terms of you keeping your people from making mistakes, what are the things that are keeping you up at night today? Like, what are the risks you're most uh, concerned about? Geopolitics, you know, and at the moment, whether Putin is rational or not, right? No rational person would think this would escalate into anything beyond a, a tragic situation. Where I'm not sure what he's trying to accomplish at the end of the day, because it's he's obviously a war criminal. But if you call him one, then he's he could go crazy because he can't travel without getting arrested. So, you know, I, I we, we're thinking we have a rational actor on the other side. And uh, so that's one. And then, you know, I think corollary to that, I was always worried about uh, Taiwan. Taiwan is no joke. At the end of the day, Ukraine is GDP is not that important to the right. global economy, but Taiwan and their semiconductor base is a catastrophe for the United States, Japan, and other countries. And, and she, you know, he has a hundred year plan. He, he wants to be more, I don't know. I mean, I do think the only benefit of the Ukraine um, situation is that it's probably going to make Xi think twice about Taiwan because the, the, mil, the, US, the government sanctions I got, what's fascinating and really impactful are the private sanctions, the companies going, shutting down their businesses, Amex, Visa, MasterCard closing their, you know, and then McDonald's and whatever. So, right, right. I mean, I think business war, the, the impact of trade slow, shutting down, companies shutting down, and all of them making tough calls because it's going to hurt the earnings short term is a new axis of power for the business community that is relevant and would make China think, I think, take a, now again, his, his perspective is 100 years, not a quarter like an American CEO. So, so that's those are those are two. I, I obviously the third would be the political disaster in this country. The two extremes are running the country, and the middle is boring and doesn't get a voice. And there's 43 percent of us are independents, and we don't have a party. Like right, we, right. we we have to like go over here, but we hate half the things they say, or over here, and we hate half the things they say. So you know, they, it would be great if a young, energetic human <laughs> yeah. um, emerged as a candidate. It's hard to believe this is the best the country could do. 
And, um, you know, and I, 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 I'll stay out of more commentary about politics, but the, the nation is seriously divided. And if, if you think we've swung from, you know, we had Obama and then we had Trump, which is another extreme, and we have Biden. And then do we get Trump or a Trump lookalike? And yeah. could there be? You are playing with fire by catering to the extremes that are getting a voice they never had before. The far left and AOC and Bernie and, and yeah. Warren Sanders and the far right, Mar- Marjorie Green, whatever her name is, a lunatic, who doesn't get denounced even by her own party because of politics. It's, um, it's sad. And, yeah. and, and the U.S. needs to make real strides. We have a $30 trillion deficit and we can do so much better. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and that would be... And it's everyone knows, anyone with a brain knows we have to fix our public school education system because what you're seeing today is a result of inequality in education, which is its core is broken by the by the, you know, a lot of the teacher unions, which that's the Democratic base. And they're getting hurt the most by by the by the unions, which don't represent active teachers. I mean, that's not the majority of the union members. They're retired. So, you know, like, yeah. And, and this, but, but Washington, you can't ever get them to say anything that's factually correct. Like right. individuals and companies don't pay taxes because they probably invested in wind farms and, and elect, uh, energy credits that they actually want you to invest in to help promote those industries. They're not stealing from people. I'm sure there are bad actors, but most companies are just actively using the tax credits that the government proposes to help industries they want to support. So like it's, and the big companies are still, what are they talking about? But you can't, it's just garbage and they screw yeah. it ever, ever, ever. From- well, I think, I think the political problem is a little bit, uh, is far more challenging than any of us could kind of uh, resolve. I, I guess coming back to, you know, and, and those are some, you know, somber, somber realities, but coming back to the, what excites you? And uh, obviously you run your own family office, you've been investing, you've invested in SPACs and even crypto that you mentioned earlier, or um, you talked a little bit about it. What, what, what are you most excited about today? Um, and how are you per- allocating your personal capital? Well, you know, I think you know, what this get rich, concentrate to stay rich, diversify. And um, so in my family office, I do more tech investing and I've done, you know, my view of crypto, which I was quoted on is saying, I don't, ha- I must have like half of my half a percent, maybe 1% of my net worth in various crypto plays. My feeling if, if crypto, you know, I mean, I met, I flew back last night. I was at a conference in Deer Valley and there was a kid on a plane who's probably worth $6 billion and his, his company's worth 13. And um, he's 32 years old and the company didn't exist two years ago. So I, my feeling is that it would, if, if, if Bitcoin were to go to a million dollars a coin, I'll kill myself if I don't own it. <laughs> and if it goes down to zero, my relative net worth will have gone up. <laughs> like he probably, he probably won't be in business anymore. So, you know, for me, I think it's, it's, um, it's, it's been a, uh, it, it's, it's, so the tech stuff, you know, I try to do directs into interesting companies. We have a prop tech fund that we just raised our first fund at Starwood where I think we're playing offense and defense. We have to be aware of new technologies and that help us run our businesses and assets better. Sure. At the same time, we have such scale that we can, benefit from these, even if we don't own a company. So we, we're interviewing, I mean, there's going to be a lot of zeros. I mean, a lot, but on the whole, it's been, it's been very successful. And, um, you know, we see a lot of opportunities and we, we'd like to partner with other families and we, we, um, it's, 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 it's been good. I, I probably need to do fewer, bigger things, but if it was really, really about diversification, then, um, that was my exposure really, even through some of the venture funds I invest in, you know, they, I would never invest in some of these companies, you know, they're like, and yet they, you know, I have a friend who put a million three into snowflake. It was worth 340 million bucks. Now it's worth, now it's worth a hundred, but it was worth three. Yeah, yeah. So, and, um, and, and crypto, I mean, I think the digitalization of finance and digitalization of assets is a hundred percent going to happen who wins and how anyone gets paid. The internet was supposed to take away middlemen's and then you had things like Expedia show up. Expedia wasn't supposed to exist. I was supposed to be able to go directly to my customer. Why do I need Expedia? I got the hotel. I should be able to go straight to the guy. So I'm sure the internet or the digital blockchain will develop the same way. They'll be right. end dominant companies. They talk about democratization. I think that's sort of a joke um, because these guys like well, it's Coinbase or FTX, they'll dominate their spaces in the exchange board. They'll be the Morgan Stanley's and the Goldman Sachs of their spaces, I guess. And, and 
Um, but I, I think, I think uh, I also like to do consumer stuff where I can, I understand um, the path to profitability. If, if there's no path to profitability, we don't invest. Right. And, you know, I, I also healthcare, I think is going to be revolutionary in the next 30 years and we'll be living longer and probably a better quality of life. Um, and that's all the government's assumptions on retirement and, and uh, social security are probably wrong because people will be healthier longer than they think. Mm-hmm. So that's probably a benefit for this, this imminent demise of social security. Right, right, right. <laughs> which, for will, sure. which won't happen. But it will happen, but not at the pace they're forecasting because the government doesn't do anything right. So, yeah. Well, I, I, I just, I know we're running out of time here. So just maybe one more question and, uh, you know, just a non sequitur from real estate, but, you know, just wondering, you know, you have three kids, you talked a lot about uh, how important that is to you. Um, uh, if there's one thing that you could communicate to, uh, a, instill in your kids, but even more importantly, maybe instill in subsequent generation, great, great, great grandkids you'll never meet. What, what would you want them to know about you? What would you want to communicate to them? Wow. <laughs> and that light, light ending question. Yeah. Well, <laughs> light way to close things out. 28 minutes after my heart stopped. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, I think that's where I am in my career, actually. You know, I never expected to be this successful. I didn't set out to be this successful. I just stayed at the game. You know, this is my sport. I wanted to be a professional tennis player, but that wasn't in the cards. So. Yeah. Actually, basketball was even worse. <laughs> so, uh, my, my highlight was all city point guard in ninth grade. Then was straight downhill from there. Um, I, you know, I, I, it's not about it's about being a good person and, and contributing meaningfully to benefiting. You know, I, I look at all the people we hired, all all the families we've helped, and all even my own four thousand people that rely on me or the 120,000 people I led at Starwood. And I used to say that my most greatest accomplishment at Starwood is creating a company with a good soul. You know, it's like we, we did, we tried to be the shining hill on uh, light on the hill in every community we served. And that was my goal that these, that the GMs and their staffs got in, involved in the cities that they operated in and, and did good philanthropic work, whether it was the Ronald McDonald house or Habitat for Humanity or um, Chicago cares or New York cares, New York cares or, um, so I think, um, I think I just, you know, I think in this last chapter for me, even though it's hard to say that, cause I don't, I think I'm 38. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I do, I am transitioning to thinking about what will my, what will my legacy be? And, and, uh, I think everybody has that switch. They kind of like, and have they, have they, as they say, they don't know you for your next deal. Right. Um, so you, you, you know, I'm, I'm thinking a lot about that and I, I think, I mean, they'll obviously know that I was a successful businessman and I, I want my kids, you know, that money only buys choice. It doesn't buy happiness. And, um, and people who think it does, will find out it doesn't. Um, yeah. And having so many choices is sometimes can make you miserable. Yeah. <laughs> it's confusing where you're going to spend your holiday or who with. So, you know, spending more time with family and friends, making sure my, my kids, um, who I'm close to all of them, have enough time with me. Um, and, but, you know, I just want them to follow their passions. And, and, and if you follow a passion, it's truly a passion you'll be happy. Like I said, for me, if I could just do design in my hotels and, and my other real estate, that would be great, gratifying to me. It's not what yeah. I do, but I, I, I meander over there and, um, yeah. you know, and I love doing it and I, you know, I, I'm pretty good at it now. So, um, but I, I, you know, it's a skill set that I, that I um, was lucky enough to be right-brained and left-brained. Yeah. And that, that's probably our, our great our great strength as a firm is what you build matters. You know, you see, I'm looking at this hotel, like I said, it's across the street. And on one side, of the, the, the which is residential, and we didn't buy that, the, the rooms facing the ocean have windows, like they're like two by three. You're like, did the architect even know there was an ocean out there? <laughs> you don't see that on a spreadsheet, as you said before. Yeah. You have to go see the assets and see what the property is next door and so you know i i, I like it because you're outside you deal with people it's physical and it's not real estate i say is the greatest application of common sense there ever was yeah and sadly common sense is not that common <laughs> mm-hmm.
Thank you for joining us today. We are grateful to each of you and to each of the generous sponsors that made today's program a reality. As a reminder, 100% of the proceeds from Lunches with Legends supports pediatric mental health, improving the lives of children and families in our communities. If you haven't already, please consider donating and supporting our efforts by visiting lunchswithlegends.com. Finally, to get exclusive access to our family office events and our annual conference, make sure to subscribe to our mailing list on the Prime Quadrant website, which you can access by visiting primequadrant.com.